right. Good evening. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, and a special thanks to the Catholic Information Center and to the CIC director, Father Charles Trujillo, for um, having us here tonight and for partnering with the Thomistic Institute to make this event possible. My name is Caitlin Burke, and I am the Campus Programs Manager for the Thomistic Institute. Um, in, it's good to see a lot of uh, faces who've been here before, but in case you're new to the TI, we uh, exist to promote Catholic truth in the world today by strengthening the intellectual formation of Christians at universities, in the church, and in the wider public square. The thought of St. Thomas Aquinas is our touchstone. We are a work of the Dominican Order of Preachers and part of the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception, um, which is located in the Brookland neighborhood here in town. We host a number of conferences and lectures across the country and then also in England and Ireland now throughout the year. Um, tonight's event is brought to us by our DC Young Adults chapter. Um, and we have two other upcoming DC area events that I want to share with you that I hope you can join us for as well. One of them is at the end of this month, um, coming up, it'll be at the Dominican House of Studies. It's our annual, part of our annual Thomistic Circle series. Uh, the topic this year is Friendly Rivals, Franciscan and Dominican Intellectual Traditions. So that'll be held Friday and Saturday, September 28th and 29th. There's more details out by the cash register on that. Um, even if you're not able to get off work Friday, we'd love to have you for Saturday if you can come. And then the next event coming up here at the CIC um, is the second installment in our series on literature, tonight being the first. The, um, the series is titled Tales That Tail, Original Sin and Moral Devastation in Literature. So the second one coming up, it will be on October 17th. The title is Out of This Stony Rubbish, and it'll be looking at um, devastation and rebirth in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. Uh, Thomas Fow from Duke University will be joining us for that event. Um, if you're not able to join us for those, or if you'd like to learn more about our, um, or just listen to recordings that, from our other talks that are in other locations, you can actually follow us on iTunes or on SoundCloud. We're just under Thomistic Institute, and there are recordings of all of our talks on there. Uh, so back to tonight's talk. I would like to introduce you to one of our DC Young Adult Chapter leader, uh, Tyler Castle, who will um, give you information on our speaker tonight. Thank you. Well, it's uh, great to have such a full room. Um, hopefully, you all out there uh, can uh, maybe find a seat on the ground, uh, Indian style or something. Uh, I'm sorry uh, that we don't have more seats, but it's really my pleasure to introduce tonight uh, Nicholas Healy, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy and Culture at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family at the Catholic University of America. Uh, Catholics know how to name something, I guess. Um, Professor Healy received his doctorate from Oxford University with a dissertation on the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Since 2002, he has served as an editor of the North American edition of Communio, International Catholic Review. His book, The Eschatology of Hans Urs von Balthasar, Being as Communion, was published by the Oxford University Press. Recent articles have, uh, that he's written have addressed the doctrine of providence, the question of Christian philosophy, and the theological anthropology of Thomas Aquinas, and Henry de Lubeck. Currently, he is working on the theology of the Eucharist and Christian states of life. Uh, he's local here in D.C., and in his free time, he gives le lectures on Dostoevsky, as one does. Um, <laughs> would you join me in welcoming Professor Healy? So thank you to the Catholic Information Center and the Thomistic Institute for the invitation. I'm very grateful to be here. So my title is Forgiveness and Solidarity in the Brothers Karamazov. 
In June of 1880, which was the year that his great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, was published, and just a few months before his untimely death, Dostoevsky was asked to give a speech on the occasion of an unveiling of a monument to Pushkin, Russia's greatest poet. In this speech, Dostoevsky reflected on the nature and task of the artist, as well as the vocation of Russia. And I quote, to become a true Russian, to become a Russian fully, in the end, I repeat, means only to become the brother of all men, to become, if you will, a universal man. To be a true Russian does indeed mean to aspire finally to reconcile the contradictions of Europe, to show the end of European yearning in our Russian soul, omni-human and all-uniting, to include within our soul by brotherly love all the brethren, and at last it may be to pronounce the final word of the great general harmony, of the final brotherly communion of all nations in accordance with the law of the gospel of Christ. Addressed, Dostoevsky posed a question to the proponents of revolution, to the socialists and future communists who yearned for a more just social order. Imagine, he said, that you are building yourself a palace of human destiny for the final end of making all men happy, of giving them peace and rest at last. Imagine also that for that purpose it is necessary and inevitable to torture to death one single human being, and him not a great soul, not a Shakespeare, but a simple person. He has only to be disgraced, dishonored, and tortured, and on his dishonored suffering your palace shall be built. Would you consent to be the architect on this condition? That is the question. Do you despise humanity, or do you respect it, you, its future saviors? Here we have the greatness of the Russian spirit in its yearning for communion and wholeness, together with a prophetic condemnation of the program of atheistic communism that would bring evil and destruction on an unprecedented scale to Russia and to much of Europe. Listen to the words of the Bolshevik Defense Council in November of 1918, just over a year after the Communist Revolution of 1917. We are not fighting against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeois as a class. It is not necessary during the interrogation to look for evidence proving that the accused opposed the Soviets in word or action. The first question you should ask him, what class do you belong to? What is your origin, your education, and profession? These are the questions which will determine the fate of the accused, such as the sense and the essence of the Red Terror. Do you despise humanity or do you respect it? You, its future saviors. The genius of Dostoevsky is to have grasped that there can be no love for mankind without a love for God. And conversely, there can be no belief in God without a love for God's good creation. The question of God and the dignity of the human person created in the image of God stand or fall together. So my plan for tonight is to begin with a brief overview of Dostoevsky's life, and then the second part of my lecture will focus on the structure and main characters of his literary masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. I'm going to presume that most of you are uh, familiar with the novel, that you've read the novel, and if you haven't had this privilege, I hope my words will encourage you to take up the book. Um, just as an aside, I highly recommend the translation by Richard Pivier and Larissa Volokonsky in Every Man's Library. <laughs> okay, the third and final part of my lecture will take up briefly uh, some of the key themes of the novel, focusing especially on the themes of forgiveness, 
Christian solidarity, as well as death and resurrection. So part one, uh, Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky was born in 1821 in Moscow into a family with aristocratic ties, but somewhat impoverished. His father was a physician at the Marinsky Hospital for the Poor and also a troubled alcoholic. But both his parents were devout members of the Russian Orthodox Church, and they imparted their simple but fervent faith to their two children, Fyodor and his older brother, Mikhail. In 1837, when Dostoevsky was 15, his mother died of tuberculosis. Around this time, he entered the Military Engineering Academy in St. Petersburg. In 1839, his father died. It was assumed, but never proven, that he was murdered by his own serfs. After graduating from the Military Academy, he was commissioned as an officer in the Engineering Corps. And during these years in St. Petersburg, Dostoevsky's literary interests continued to grow. And in 1845, he published his first novel, Poor Folk. Uh, the book was a literary and a commercial success. And shortly after its publication, Dostoevsky resigned his commission in the army and decided to devote himself to writing. He authored several short stories. And he began to move in the leading literary and political circles uh, in St. Petersburg. A decisive event occurred in 1849. He attended some secret meetings of a radical political group, and he was arrested and charged with treason. Following a trial, the members of the group were condemned to death by firing squad. On December 23, 1849, the prisoners were lined up for execution, soldiers there with rifles loaded. And at the last moment, uh, they were told that by order of the czar, the sentence was commuted. Instead of execution, Dostoevsky was sent to prison in Siberia for four years of hard labor, followed by an additional term of compulsory military service. Classified as one of the more dangerous criminals, Dostoevsky had his hands and feet shackled until his release. He was only permitted to read uh, the New Testament. After his release from prison, he began compulsory military service in northern Kazakhstan, during these years, he met his future wife, uh, Maria Dimitrievna. In 1859, he received permission to return to St. Petersburg, where he resumed his literary career. Uh, but these were difficult years, marked by suffering and financial difficulties. The aspiring author was plagued by poverty and poor health, including several epileptic fits. Uh, he also had a weakness for gambling. Dostoevsky was devastated by his wife's death in 1864, which was followed shortly thereafter by his brother's death. He was financially crippled by debts, and he also decided freely to assume the responsibility of his deceased brother's outstanding debts. His greatest novels were written in the last 15 years of his life, uh, Crime and Punishment in 1866, The Idiot in 1868, uh, The Possessed, sometimes translated as The Demons, in 1871, and finally, The Brothers Karamazov in 1880. Only in the last years of his life did he emerge from debt, thanks in part to the tireless efforts of his second wife, Anna uh, Grigor Grigorevna, whom he married in 1867. But these final years were also marked by tragedy. In 1878, his infant son, Alexei, died. And shortly after, he made a pilgrimage with Vladimir Soloviev to the monastery of Optina Pustin. 
He died in 1881. On his tombstone are the words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This passage from the Gospel of John is also the epigraph of the brothers Karamazov. So let me turn to the structure and characters of the novel. He began writing in he began writing the book in 1878, but a letter from 1870 contains an initial sketch that I think shed some light on the author's fundamental aim. So he writes to a friend in 1870, I'm, I'm working on a novel, don't tell anyone. He says, the general title of the novel is The Life of a Great Sinner. The main problem which will be dealt with is the one that has tormented me consciously or unconsciously all my life, the existence of God. The hero in the course of his life is now an atheist, now a believer, then a fanatic and sectarian, only to return to faith. The second part of the story will take place in a monastery. I have concentrated all my hopes on this part. Here, the hero of the story, who had committed a crime as, as a child, will encounter a monk, modeled on Tihon of Zadonsk, but with a different name. Perhaps I shall produce an imposing, positive, saintly figure." End of quote. So the novel Dostoevsky actually wrote eight years later is, of course, very different, but there is an echo of the original plan. Instead of The Life of a Great Sinner, the title became The Brothers Karamazov. The brothers are the three sons of Fyodor Karamazov. The oldest son, Dmitri, is the child of Fyodor's first wife. After her untimely death, Fyodor remarried and had two more sons, Ivan and Alexei, also called Alyosha. So the novel is the story of these three brothers, each of whom is very different from the others in appearance, in disposition, and in belief. A preface from the author uh, appended to the brothers Karamazov provides, I think, an additional clue for how to think about the novel as a whole. In this preface, Dostoevsky writes that the brothers Karamazov is the first part of a two-part biography of his hero, Alexei Karamazov. The novel will recount some events that happened 13 years ago, events that were of decisive importance in shaping the life and outlook of his hero. Dostoevsky then anticipates a question, a question that the reader might have. Why is Alexei a hero? Why should I, the reader, spend my time studying the facts of his life? This is, he tells us, a difficult and a fateful question. His reply, perhaps you'll see from the novel. However, he worries that he might not succeed. This is because his hero is admittedly a strange or an odd figure. But it sometimes happens, he writes, that an odd figure bears within himself the very heart of the whole, while the other people of his epic have been torn away from it by a kind of flooding wind. So I'll come back to this point. Uh, just remember that what Alyosha carries in his heart is of decisive importance for the meaning of the novel. The novel is divided into four parts. Each part consists of three chapters with a further division into subchapters. So three chapters or, or books, they're actually called in most editions. And the action or the drama unfolds on two levels. The first level concerns the events that happen during the course of the story, chiefly the murder of the father, Fyodor Karamazov, and the ensuing arrest and trial, but also the relationships between the three brothers, 
and three women, Katarina, who is engaged to Dmitri, Grushenka, and the enigmatic Lisa, a child of 14 who hopes to marry Alyosha. The story of these loves and the events set in motion by the murder of Fyodor is very complex, and it's depicted on a grand scale. There are other stories interwoven, including the life of the monk or elder Zosima, whose teaching and whose death are of crucial importance for our hero, Alyosha. And there's also a subplot involving a group of children, children who are befriended by Alyosha, and one of whom dies of illness at a young age. But there is a second level to the novel, the interior drama that unfolds within Alexei's soul. So remember, this is the first part of a biography of Alyosha. And these events, this story is recounted in order for us to gain a deeper understanding of Alyosha's life and Alyosha's future mission in the world. So let me say a brief word about these two levels and the hidden connection between them. So the Brothers Karamazov is the story of a murder, and not just any murder, but patricide. The opening books set the stage for this murder by way of introducing Fyodor and his three sons. Fyodor is a disgraceful and debaucherous character, consumed by greed and lust. We learn that he terribly mistreated both of his wives and completely abandoned his children, at times literally forgetting that they even exist. The three sons have been raised and educated by others. The oldest son, Dimitri, he's 28 when the story begins, had a disorderly adolescence and youth. He entered the military where he is wild and carefree with money. He grows up with the expectation that he will will inherit a property. The second son, Ivan, is an aspiring intellectual. We learn that as a child, he was painfully conscious of having to depend on the generosity of others. When we meet him in the story, we learn he does not believe in God. Um, And I'll return to this this question of Ivan's atheism. The youngest son, uh, Alexei or Alyosha, is a gentle and generous soul, an early lover of mankind. One of the first things we're told about him is that he remembered his mother all his life, even though she died when he was uh, just a child. Believing with all his heart in God and in the immortality of the soul, he decides to enter the monastery where the saintly figure Zosima resides. The story opens at a time when all three brothers have recently returned to the town where their father resides. Ivan is staying with the debaucherous father, Fyodor, Dimitri is renting rooms in town, and Alyosha is living in a monastery next to the town. Dimitri is convinced that his father has cheated him out of the inheritance that was due to him from his mother, and he is desperate to obtain money. To make matters more complicated, Dimitri and his father have both fallen for the same woman, Grushenka, and she is undecided. Each is terrified at the prospect that she might bestow her affections on the other. When Fyodor is murdered, suspicion immediately falls on Dmitri, who is arrested and charged with the murder. And the final third of the novel revolves around the arrest and trial of Dmitri, but also his relationship with Grushenka, his acceptance of suffering, and his moral regeneration. The reader eventually learns that the real culprit is Smerdyakov, who is almost certainly an illegitimate son of Fyodor, and who works in the house as a servant. Smerdyakov has fallen under the influence of Ivan, 
who teaches him that because God does not exist, everything is permitted. After the murder, Ivan is in despair because he knows that he is implicated in the murder of his father, but he struggles to find the path of forgiveness. Okay, but the second level, the second level involves an interior drama within Alyosha's soul. So let me try to explain what I mean by this. We first meet Alyosha as a novice in the monastery. We learn about his deep love for God, his hope for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. We also learn of his profound love for the elder Zosima, who bears witness to the truth of God's love revealed in Christ. There is a key passage in the very beginning of the novel. I quote, Though there is sin and unrighteousness on earth, still there is someone holy who knows the truth. The conviction that the elder after death would bring remarkable glory to the monastery reigned in Alyosha's soul. In his heart, so in Zosima's heart, there is the secret of renewal for all, the power that will finally establish the truth on earth, and we will love one another as children of God. The kingdom of Christ will come. That was the dream in Alyosha's heart. In the middle of the novel, the elder Zosima dies. And instead of bringing glory, instead of being recognized as a saint whose life and whose teaching will help to inaugurate the growth of the kingdom of God on earth, his death brings the opposite. His corpse follows the course of nature. It corrupts and emits a putrid odor. Those who were expecting immediate miracles after his death are discredited. And the enemies of Zosima, enemies who had been jealous of his acclaim, are happy to cast aspersions on the saintly figure. And it's difficult to exaggerate what this means for Alyosha, the upheaval in his soul. In despair and doubt, he departs from the monastery in a spirit of rebellion. He meets the tempter, Rakitin, who decides to bring him to Grushenka in order to precipitate his moral ruin. Instead, the fallen woman, Grushenka, offers him a kind word and shows mercy as soon as he learns of the death of Zosima. Renewed in his faith, Alexei returns to the monastery, to the cell where the corpse of Zosima is laid out in preparation for burial. Father Paisi is there reading the story of Cana from John's Gospel. And this chapter, Cana of Galilee, is the hinge and key to the novel. Zosima's death provoked a crisis in Alyosha's life and faith, but it's also a death that bears fruit. So let me read a few passages from this key chapter, Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, Alyosha overheard. The first miracle, not grief, but man's joy Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. The dead man used to say that too. He who loves men loves their joy. The passage continues with the reading of the gospel interspersed with Alyosha recollecting uh, the teaching of Zosima. And what follows is a sort of mystical experience where Alyosha uh, encounters Zosima, uh, risen from the dead, as it were, alive again. So now quoting Alyosha, can it be that he too, Zosima too, is at the banquet that he too has been called to the marriage in Cana in Galilee. Alyosha is invited by Zosima, who has died, but who is now with Christ, to the wedding feast. Zosima speaks to Alyosha in Alyosha's mystical experience. So Zosima says, 
I have been called and we are rejoicing, drinking new wine, the wine of a new and great joy. Do you not see him? Do not be afraid. Terrible is his loftiness, yet he is boundlessly merciful. He became like us out of love. He is ceaselessly calling new guests to the feast. Something burned in Alyosha's heart. He awakens as though from a dream. He sees now the corpse uh, lying dead with an icon on its chest. He walks outside, his soul yearning for freedom. Over the heavenly dome, full of quiet, shining stars, the silence of the earth seemed to merge with the silence of the heavens. He throws himself to the earth, weeping and watering the earth with his tears. He vows to love God's creation unto ages of ages. He wept for the earth and for stars that shone from the abyss. It was as if threads from all those innumerable worlds of God all came together in his soul. He wanted to forgive everyone for everything and to ask forgiveness. He fell to the earth a weak youth and rose up a fighter, steadfast for the rest of his life. Never in all his life would Alyosha forget this moment. Someone visited my soul in that hour, he would say afterwards. Three days later, he left the monastery. So the joy of Christ's first miracle opens into the joy of the resurrection. In prayer and faith, Alyosha is, as it were, invited by Zosima, who has died but who is with Christ, to the wedding feast. Death and resurrection are brought together and brought into life. Alyosha, in turn, undergoes a sort of death, falling to the ground, dying, and he remains in the monastery for three days. Okay, so how are the two levels of the story connected? It's important to note that at the moment when Alyosha is experiencing a kind of death and rebirth, his father is murdered. His brothers Dmitri and Ivan are implicated in the murder in different ways. Zosima's final instructions to Alyosha had been, go and care for your brothers. Sojourning in the monastery for three days, we can presume, involves a kind of communion in suffering and prayer with and for his brothers. The rest of the novel shows the unfolding and the fruitfulness of what Alyosha experienced in connection with Zosima's death. Sent by Zosima, he will bring healing, forgiveness, and renewal to his two brothers. And he also brings forgiveness and fellowship to a group of young boys. And most importantly, he brings hope for the resurrection. So part three, uh, just a few key themes in the novel. And here uh, there is an abundance of riches. So uh, in the limited time, I just want to introduce three interrelated themes that I hope we can explore further uh, in discussion. The first theme is the question of God or atheism in the Brothers Karamazov. Early in the novel, we learn that Ivan does not believe in God. During an important conversation with Alyosha, a conversation that culminates with the famous story of the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan explains more precisely the nature of his atheism. He says, it's not God that I don't accept. It's this world of gods, this world created by gods, that I do not accept and cannot agree to accept. And the reason for his rejection of the world is the suffering of innocent children. He recounts to Alyosha in excruciating detail uh, the incredible cruelty inflicted upon innocent children. And he says, 
And here we, we can hear the echo of the, the words of Dostoevsky at the speech in honor of Pushkin. So Ivan says, if the suffering of children goes to make up the sum of suffering needed to buy truth, then the whole of truth is not worth such a price. I do not want the mother whose innocent child was tortured to forgive. If she dare not forgive, where is the harmony? Imagine you are building the edifice of human destiny with the object of making people happy in the finale, giving them peace and rest. But for that, you must inevitably and unavoidably torture one tiny creature and raise your edifice on the foundation of her unrequited tears. Would you agree to be the architect on such a condition? Uh, Dostoevsky himself thought that this was a powerful argument um, uh, in favor of atheism, and he was worried that he wouldn't succeed adequately in answering it. His answer takes, takes two forms in the novel. First, uh, the immediate response of Alyosha during the conversation. Alyosha says, you asked me just now if there is in the whole world a being who could and would have the right to forgive. There is such a being who can forgive everything, forgive all and for all, because he himself gave his innocent blood for all and for everything. And it is on him that the structure is being built. The second aspect of Dostoevsky's answer is more complex. It is the entire life of Zosima and the fruit that comes from Zosima's teaching, his life, and his death. A careful reader of the novel should compare how Ivan relates to children with how Zosima and especially Alyosha relate to children. So Ivan rejects God because of the suffering of children. Does he, however, show any esteem or respect for children? And the answer is no. In rejecting God as the creator, Ivan has undermined the ground of human dignity and human solidarity, and he embodies this contempt in his actions. Like Ivan, Alyosha is tormented by the suffering of children, but he asks for forgiveness, and he embodies this forgiveness by caring for children, healing their wounds, bringing them into fellowship or communion. He teaches them to forgive each other and to reverence God's good creation, especially human beings created in the image of God and destined for eternal life. Loving God, he loves what God has created and vice versa. Okay, the second theme, uh, and it's related, is forgiveness. More precisely, it is the idea of asking forgiveness of everyone for everything. In the novel, the source of this deeply Christian insight is the character Markel, who is the older brother of Zosima. We're told how, at a young age, Markel came under the influence of an atheistic socialist and lost his faith. Around this time, he's only 17 years old, he becomes very ill. His mother begs him to return to church and to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. To oblige his mother, he obeys. And soon thereafter, a remarkable transformation occurs. A quiet joy reigns in his soul. He begins to speak of God and forgiveness. And at the heart of this newfound faith is the idea that, quote, each of us is guilty in everything before everyone. Markel asks for forgiveness from all of God's creatures because he has not known how to love adequately. Soon thereafter, Markel dies from his illness 
but his words are a seed that many years later will bear fruit in the life of his younger brother, Zosima. Zosima, in turn, hands on this truth to Alyosha. Each of us should ask forgiveness for everything. Dostoevsky does not mean to obliterate the idea of personal sin or the need for justice. The foundation of his teaching is the doctrine of creation and redemption in Christ. As created by God, each human being exists in relationship to the whole human family and ultimately all of creation. Each of us bears a real responsibility for the whole of creation. Sin represents a rejection of this gift and task, a denial of creation. And the effects of sin are precisely incalculable. Asking for forgiveness for everything is an acknowledgement that we are implicated in the sins of each person. And it's an acknowledgement that we are made for communion. And through Christ's innocent death and the gift of new life with him that he has inaugurated, we can, in truth, bear each other's burdens. Okay, and then finally, there is uh, the theme of death. Um, There are um, four deaths in the novel. Uh, I already mentioned Merkel. Merkel, the brother of Zosima, dies. Uh, Zosima dies. Fyodor is murdered. And toward the end of the novel, a young boy, Ilyusha, dies of, of illness. To these four, we could add... The, the, the sort of mystical death of Alyosha in the cell of Zosima. And it's worthwhile to think about the hidden connections between these four deaths. Um, remember the, the, the epigraph for the novel, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Markel's death bears fruit in the conversion and subsequent life of Zosima. Zosima's death, although it provokes a crisis, bears fruit in Alyosha's life. Fyodor's death, his unjust death, his murder, is admittedly more difficult. It is a cause of profound suffering and crisis for Dmitri and for Ivan, each of whom is implicated, albeit in different ways. But even here, the death and the suffering that follows opens a path for forgiveness and renewal. This is especially clear in the case of Dmitri, who accepts the suffering and the punishment of being um, named as, as his father's murderer, even though uh, he's falsely accused. And then finally, the death of the child, Ilyusha, whom uh, Alyosha had befriended. Alyosha brought together a group of young boys who help Ilyusha in his time of need and who promise to remain together in friendship after his death remembering him in gratitude. And here we have the last word of the novel, which is the last word of Dostoevsky. Can it really be true, as our religion says, that we shall all rise from the dead and come to life and see one another again? Certainly we shall rise, and we shall joyfully tell one another all that has been. So beyond death, there is hope for eternal life in communion with God and one another. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. Magnificent talk. Uh, Do you think that the three days that Oyosha spends in the monastery, uh, that it's not a coincidence that the, the, uh, the, uh, 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 that it's a duplication, perhaps, of 
Christ yeah, entombment, uh, death, entombment, uh, and resurrection. Absolutely. I think, I think we're meant to uh, see that echo, that this is, uh, I mean, the, the, the whole setting, the, the gospel being read, um, the, these words of, of Christ um, and someone visiting his soul, and then three days has to be some form of mystical participation in, in the triduum, uh, I think. Thanks for the talk. Um, I'm interested, so I think you laid out pretty clearly um, how Yvonne provides a foil to Alexei um, to illustrate some of the key points. Why do you think Dostoevsky felt he needed Smerdyakov, the possible fourth brother? I mean, um, so, so one of the questions here is fatherhood, the relationship between fatherhood and the image of God, how hard it is to believe in God when you have a, an abusive uh, and dissolute and terrible father. And uh, there, there's, we, we see healing in that, but we also see wounds in that. In the case of Smerdyakov, you, you in a way, um, you see uh, the results of a dissolute, abandoned, absent father and combined with uh, Ivan's atheism and Ivan's teaching. So uh, you, you, you could say um, he wanted Fyodor, the father, murdered, and he really wanted it to be patricide, but he didn't want it to be one of the brothers. So, I mean, because there are a couple of ways to put it. You, you could have had Smerdyakov commit the murder, and he could have just been a servant. Why, why this uh, interweaving of the story of Smerdyakov being a, a, actually a son of Fyodor. Um, it, it, it seems to me he, uh, he wants to raise the question of um, the, the, the consequences of the abdication of fatherhood, and he wants to show that. Smerdyakov incarnates um, that, that that, you know, um, the bad effects and then the rebellion that follows. Oh, I loved your talk. It was very nice. Um, just one question. Um, so you said that the Brothers Karamazov was um, part one of two. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, what do you think the, the purpose of the second novel, considering that yeah. Dostoevsky um, died before he could finish it? Also, um, would it be possible that um, Ivan maybe have uh, been addressed in the second novel, considering the ending of his, um, of, uh, well, not his death, but his brain fever? Um, yeah. Thank you. No, thank you for the question. And I actually go back and forth. I go back and forth whether this is a literary device to to say, I'm reading this now so that uh, you will know, you'll be ready for a mission in the world now, uh, that he in fact never intended to write part two, but as it were, wants to depict uh, a hero and the preparation for a hero's uh, Christian witness. Now, Against that view, uh, his, uh, his second wife, Anna, did say that he gave some thought to the second part uh, and that it was going to involve Alexei's relationship with Lisa, especially. She didn't say much about, about Ivan. So beyond that, we have almost nothing. So it's, um, we, can, we can speculate. Um, I, I actually tend toward the view uh, that it's a literary device, that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't mean it to be um, part one of part two, but wanted us to think about uh, a novel that's meant to, uh, as it were, take flesh in, in people's lives. So that um, the, the formulation he uses, um, 
Where are we at? So um, he says the, the main novel is the second one. So what's really important is the second one, and it will concern the activities of the hero in our time. Now, if you're a reader, you, uh, I think he means the our time, um, yeah, to, to, to be able to go forward um, in our present current moment. Um, so, but, but scholars are divided on the question of um, what, what was his plan for part two we, we just have a few a few notes from Mrs. Dostoevsky. Thank, uh, thank you for your talk. I had a question about the characters. You, they're clearly unique individuals, but also I wondered if um, they may somehow be seen as like symbolic types as well. I think of your opening remarks about the quotation from Dostoevsky about what it means to be Russian, but then yeah. also how it's a sort of universal thing as well. Um, I, th I think uh, absolutely there would be a symbolic depth to what each of the brothers represents. Uh, Dimitri, this this sort of passionate, uh, uh, fiery nature, um, who is is um, in in one way good, but but dissolute. And whereas Ivan, it's very different. You 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 have. Um, uh, an intellectual who who is not really engaged with with the world around him, um, and Alyosha, you have something um, symbolic. Now, there there are some who who are more critical of Alyosha, um, but I I, um, I think he's presented um, quite admirably from the, from the start. Uh, uh, beyond that, I'm. I wouldn't want to go too far in making it an allegory. Um, I, I think um, they're, 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 too, they're too incarnate. Um, the, uh, could, could you uh, tell me the name again of the, she'll stand. <laughs> tell me the name of the love interest, uh, brief, brief betrothal, okay. uh, the young woman. Yeah, uh, this is a woman. Uh, um, it's a great story, so I'll, I may have to explain a little bit of background. But, well, Katarina. Ka no, um, oh, Grushenka? No, no. So oh, I'm Lisa. talking about Alyosha. Oh, Ali okay, Lisa. Lisa, Lisa now. Lisa, yeah. So, so, so um, I, I just want to contrast the, the relationship of uh, Ivan and Dmitri and Fyodor to uh, Katarina and Grushenka in various ways is, is just incredibly passionate. Yes. Yeah. And you don't lose these women easily, and the women don't lose you easily. There's no easy yeah. come, easy go in, in these relationships. Whereas Alyosha with Lucia, it, it kind of starts on mostly a whim of hers, and it ends on a whim of hers. And he, he was betrothed for that period, yeah. and then it's kind of, okay, She's fickle, no big deal. And so, what does that say about him? Okay, well, I mean, um, his, uh, another, another theme that's a really interesting one is the relationship between monastic life and worldly mission. Uh, so it's clear Dostoevsky has the highest esteem for monasticism, but he also wants to depict in this novel something about a monastic, uh, bringing, bringing the monastic charism into the world. So it's important that Zosima sends 
Alyosha into the world, and Zosima says, you're going to marry Lisa. So now, um, you might say, well, well, where's the romance? Wouldn't it be good if the hero actually you know, fell in love and there was this, um, they, di they did have a great childhood relationship that for her, she, she, you could tell she's always loved Alyosha uh, when we meet her. Okay, she's 14, she's in a wheelchair, uh, but she's convinced she's going to marry uh, Alyosha, and he, uh, when, when she sort of declares her love to him, he said, okay, yeah, let, we're going to get married. He's not, there's not a great drama uh, from his side, as it were. But then what's very difficult to understand, that's why I call her the, the enigmatic figure, is um, she, um, she goes through some real despair and, and you can see she's influenced by Yvonne. Yvonne has been telling things to her about the suffering of children and it, and it, and it affects her deeply to the point where um, you, you start to worry about her. Now, that's not resolved. And one of the strong, for me, one of the stronger arguments for part two is going to be you've, you've set certain things in motion uh, about this complex relationship that's going to, you know, they're going to get married. What, what kind of relationship are they going to have? She's a very sensitive soul who's ready to, when she learns of others suffering, to suffer herself. But it's also uh, imbalanced. Um, Okay, but yeah, from, from the side of, of a love relationship, you might, you, you, it, it comes up a little short. Much better is Dmitry and Grushenka uh, in terms of passion. Thank you, Professor. Very good presentation, and it's, it's inspiring and uh, invites uh, me, at least, to read The Brothers. I haven't read it. Could you uh, remind, uh, two, two things. Could you please remind us, is there only one every man's edition? I think so. Okay. I think there's only... And, and the although, trans translators again So uh, it's Richard uh, Pevere, which is P-E-V-E-A-R, Richard Pevere, and Larissa Volokonsky. Larissa Volokonsky. The Constance Garnett. I do. I do. I have yeah. a second part. Okay. There is... Uh, I mean... There's the, the, if you were to go to a used bookstore, the, the translation you would most likely encounter is uh, by Constance Garnett, which is okay. It's, it's actually uh, it's a decent translation, but I think um, this is an improvement. So if, if it's what you have, don't worry. Read, read the Garnett translation. It's, it's fine. Um, but I think this, this is, if you're going to buy the book new, this is preferable. For those of us who haven't read much Dostoevsky, could you suggest a, a, a sequence or a few, uh, a few of his writings that, uh, that would lead up to yeah. or follow from the brothers? Yeah. Um, well, th those four great, any of those uh, four, well, especially the, th the three that, to my mind, and this, this may be just personal affinity, that uh, are immortal are Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, and Brothers Karamazov. So I would... Uh, by all means, become familiar with those. Uh, Notes from the Underground is very good and, and uh, much shorter. So uh, it's not, uh, you know, it can be, it's a, it's a complex tale there, but um, if you, you, it can be a little intimidating to, to start um, an 800 page novel. Uh, it's a lot easier than War and Peace or <laughs> Anna Karenina. Uh, um, 
I, I had a, a professor who said, you, you're not really alive unless you're reading War and Peace. So it's kind of, yeah, it's just, uh, and um, the, the, the two, they were contemporaries, and they had the uh, high esteem for each other. Tolstoy especially thought Dostoevsky was, was a, real, a, a Christian genius. Uh, but they never met. They once they were at a at a lecture together like this. That it was uh, this brilliant young uh, theologian, Vladimir Soloviev, who then became a, a dear friend of Dostoevsky, was giving an inaugural lecture uh, in Moscow, and both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy attended the lecture. And there was a plan that they would meet, but there was a miscommunication, and Dostoevsky left early, so they never met. They never met. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Healy. I've always sensed, and you brought this up in your lecture, that there's a lot of importance, obviously, to Mark Hill's insight that we are all guilty of all things before all men. And, I mean, he obviously takes it to almost comical portions when he's like conf confessing to the birds, the birds or something like yeah. that. Um, and, and you hinted at some of the, like, how exactly this constitutes an answer to Yvonne's challenge. You said it, it shows how we are implicated in the sins of others and how we are called to a kind of communion. But... I guess I'm just wondering, and I know this this is a difficult question, but if you could expand a little bit on, on I guess what what deeper wisdom hi lies in these words, yeah. because there's a, there's obviously a literal way in which obviously it's not true. Yeah, that's and right. um, I don't know. It, it's, it, it seems yeah. to me like it's the kind of the key of the novel, and I just wonder how do you think it constitutes an answer? Yeah, I mean maybe maybe starting uh, with with one part of your question, which is a little easier, and that is um, Dostoevsky in making that claim also knew that there's a sense in which that, that's not true. So it's very important at a, at, a, at a point later in the novel when Ivan is in despair, Alyosha tells him, you didn't kill, you're not guilty of father. You're not guilty, you didn't kill father. So you don't have uh, a sense of um, guilt is simply spread out so, so the, the, the personal is, is evacuated. Dostoevsky was very uh, aware of, of that risk and, there, and, and wasn't saying, well, something bad happened. It's all of our fault. We're all guilty. Uh, so then what, what, what is he saying positive? What, what, is, what is the point? And there, I think if you, if you try to think about what it means that we're creatures of God, uh, that, that all of us together are created by God, and, and we're called to love, and therefore uh, there's a sense in which uh, none of us is adequate to that task. None of us loves uh, the, the way we're called to love. And asking for forgiveness is an acknowledgement of that vocation to love, a vocation to communion. And whether you put it in terms of love or responsibility, they would, they would converge on, on the same idea. And then to, to, to concretize that, you, you can look, I mean, you can do it, there's, there's a whole... Uh, book uh, in the novel, uh, and it's interesting. So the the narrator of the novel is is twofold. It's a local resident, who and but then it's also an, it's, at certain points it's an omniscient figure who knows things about the interior. Uh, but then within the story, there is um, a book of teachings from Zosima, and we're told this comes from Alyosha. This is so the the narrator. Uh, gets this from the, the the beloved the beloved disciple, and there you have the story of Markel, you have the story of Zosima's life, but you also have teachings of Zosima. And I think in order to fill out that claim, uh, each of us is is responsible for all, and and the 
uh, attending forgiveness, it's helpful to see Zos, the, the concrete shape of Zosima's life and his teaching. And then see also, well, what does Alyosha do? What does he do after, after his father's murdered? What does he do in relation to Ivan? What does he do in relation to Dmitri? What about these children? And then his friend uh, Soloviev, uh, with whom he went on this pilgrimage when he's conceiving the brothers Karamazov, he said, after Dostoevsky died, he said, you know what this novel's about? It's about the church. It's really interesting. What do you mean? But Soloviev's not wrong. Uh, it's about resurrection, and it's about a form of communion that comes from Christ. That's the church. So it's a novel about the church. Thank you very much for the lecture. It was wonderful. Um, what parallels can you draw between this work and um, which I believe you described as Dostoevsky's greatest work um, and Hermann Hesse's work in the 20th century, specifically Steppenwolf and Demian? Um, what parallels could you draw between the kind of German spirit that Hess wanted to cultivate and the aspirational messages that Dostoevsky put in his work? And then how can you, I mean, the obvious parallel is German fascism versus Russian communism, but what, in terms of the two artists' work, what could you say? Well, this is where I get to say, thank God I'm a professor of theology and philosophy and not <laughs> literature, so I, I just don't have, I don't, I wish I could, I don't have, I've read Hesse when I was young, but I don't, I haven't thought, I'm not, I don't have the confidence. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I wish I was able to uh, say more about that. Um, Dostoevsky's relation to Catholicism, no one asked me about that. That's really complex. So I don't know if we have any Jesuits here who, uh, he is not a great fan of the Jesuits. Uh. Uh, thank you all again so much for coming out. Thank you, Professor Healy, for that insightful discussion. And uh, thank you to the audience again for joining us for tonight's lecture. And a special thank you to our co-sponsors, the Thomistic Institute. They are a great organization, and we encourage you to visit their website to learn more about what their organization has to offer you and, their up and to see their upcoming events. We are also very excited about a Wikipedia workshop we are offering here on Saturday, September 29th. Attendees will learn to edit Wikipedia and use online and print sources to update or create related Wikipedia articles as a means to increase online visibility for local parishes. It's a unique opportunity that will feature Wikimedia um, associates and librarians as resources. There is a rich institutional history of the Catholic Church here in the Archdiocese, dating all the way back to John Carroll, the first bishop and archbishop in the United States. Our goal is to make that history known on the world's largest online encyclopedia. Tickets are also available for this year's new evangelization award dinner. Please visit our website to learn more about our this dinner and this year's awardee, Sean Filer. And to stay up to date on all of our upcoming events and programs, please check out our events um, calendar on our website, follow our social media pages, and join our listserv. Thank you again so much for coming. Please join us for the reception that will go until 8 o'clock sharp, and uh, enjoy the rest of your night.